Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Some people say it costs too much to be an environmentally responsible company, but we've found just the opposite. Like when we made our yogurt containers thinner, we reduced the fuel needed to ship them, which cut carbon emissions and costs. We're proud of the way we run our business and proud to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Storing digital data in the cloud sucks up energy and casts a giant carbon footprint. But there just might be a green lining to cloud computing. I think it's inevitable that we're marching towards carbon-free energy. And it would be nice for the U.S. to take a leadership role in that. I think that might solve our economic woes and certainly our jobs problems. Also, a former U.S. senator grades the response to the BP oil disaster. The Congress has done virtually nothing to implement the recommendations that we made, so we gave Congress a D. Meanwhile, in the Gulf of Mexico... Oil is still there. As a matter of fact, oil was oozing out of the marshes as we stepped in it. But most of the information that we need to have about the impacts is being held undercover. It's not being released. Those stories this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The exponential growth in digital data, photos, emails, videos, corporate, governmental, and personal records, has been soaring like a rocket. And to keep up with the demand to store, manipulate, and manage all those gajillions of gigabytes, we've increasingly turned to the cloud. Vast, often remote sites made up of millions of computer servers that use prodigious amounts of energy. Now Greenpeace wants cloud companies to come clean on their energy use and has issued a new report rating how well they do. Greenpeace senior IT analyst Gary Cook is author of the study, How Green Is Your Cloud? At a global level, our estimates show that electricity demand in the cloud would rank among countries but make it the fifth largest electricity consumer in the world, equivalent to the amount of emissions from airline travel. And what we did our report for was to really try to shine a light on which companies are doing well in terms of powering their platforms with renewable energy and those who maybe aren't doing quite so well because there's lots of claims about how green the cloud is, but we think it's really important to look at companies and how they're performing. Well, the cloud is also growing very rapidly. That's very true. If these companies who are some of the most innovative in the world embrace the challenge to power their platforms with renewable energy, they would be leading the charge for all of us to have clean energy. If they go in the other direction, they could actually be holding us back and making investments that could be extending the life of coal plants and making investments that's going to slow down the transition to renewable energy. Well, I'm looking at your scorecard here. So you you rate them in terms of their amount of coal and nuclear power they get, plus uh, four variables, energy transparency, infrastructure siting, energy efficiency and greenhouse gas uh, mitigation, and renewables and advocacies. And none of them do really well. You gave no straight A's. You didn't give any straight B's either. A lot of D's and F's. That's true. On the plus side, we have seen significant improvements since we put out a similar report last year. On the downside, we see many companies growing very quickly and building in locations that's going to be largely powered by coal and other sources of dirty energy. So quite a bit of room for improvement. You really take Apple to task. Uh, you say that their cloud storage facilities, their new ones in North Carolina, are you know really not very clean at all. 
Apple is one of the most innovative and popular um, companies in the world. They challenge us all to think different uh, in the past. And what we really need to see Apple is accept that challenge with regards to its energy use for its cloud. And so what they need to be doing is demanding better from Duke Energy, who has a number of coal plants very close by that use mountaintop removal coal from Appalachia. And they're a big customer. They have the ability to demand better, demand that Duke think different and provide them clean energy. There are, of course, companies, say, like Amazon, which uh, does all of its business basically on the cloud. And it says, you know, hey, we save a lot of uh, trips to the store, you know, digital books. We save trees. We view the IT sector as a critical partner in driving a clean energy economy, you know, using video conferencing instead of transportation or do it online rather than have to do it in the real world. But it's important that we get this investment right because we're going to continue to rely upon it more and more. And it's a significant power demand. So how green is is the Greenpeace cloud? So Greenpeace has adopted a a global uh, commitment to move its IT services to be powered by green energy as fast as we can and have been contacting our providers, many of whom are included in the evaluation we released this week, to understand the amount of renewable energy they're using and make sure that we can power fully power our cloud services from clean energy. One of the companies that you rate is Akamai. It's one of the largest uh, cloud service and data delivery companies in the world. And uh, Gary, I'm going to speak to Akamai uh, after our conversation. Uh, you got a question for them because you rank them on this report. We gave one of, of our few A's in this evaluation because of their transparency. They have really uh, the only company who is reporting the amount of carbon across the network. Ask the question to them is one of the, they're going to get other companies to do the same. Gary Cook is author of Greenpeace International's new study, How Green Is Your Cloud? Well, as mentioned, Akamai is one of the cloud companies ranked in the study. At any given time, up to 30% of all Internet traffic is carried on Akamai's cloud computing network. In Hawaiian, Akamai means clever or smart, so maybe we shouldn't be surprised that it's the only company Greenpeace gave an A for energy transparency. It's the only company that measures the energy used at its cloud data centers in terms of carbon emissions. Nicole Peel-Moulter is Director of Environmental Sustainability at Akamai. I put Gary Cook's question to her. What was Akamai doing to get other cloud companies to do the same thing? It's a great question, and I think it has to be answered by each company on their own. They have to make their own decisions about how transparent they want to be with their data. Akamai felt that it was important for us to be transparent because we could help other companies understand that metricing their energy and carbon emissions is actually a way to make their operations more efficient. But you did get a D in renewables and advocacy. Yes. We own and operate our own servers. We have currently over 100,000 of them, and they reside in 75 countries in third-party data centers. And we don't control the operations of those data centers. And we don't have anywhere to site our own renewable energy. We want to start working with our data center partners to better understand how their operations can become more efficient because we feel like energy efficiency is probably where we're going to get the biggest impact. It reduces costs, so it's it's a natural for businesses to adopt. Well, can't you choose your data center partners? You're a big company. We certainly can, but to be honest, there aren't a lot of data center providers out there who use who actually do on-site renewables because data centers tend to use megawatts of power and you can't really put solar panels on a data center to provide even a tiny fraction of that power consumption. 
So usually what we see is where it's available, our data center partners can purchase uh, renewable energies off of the grid. Well, I don't know about the renewables, though. You know, Microsoft is going to get 100% of its uh, energy from renewables in the U.K. and Ireland. They've got new uh, data farms there. And and, uh, Facebook says they're building one in Sweden. So I guess it is possible. It certainly is possible. Akamai doesn't have the scale that these other companies that you mentioned do. So we have to sort of work within the business parameters of what's right for Akamai. And we certainly are going to proactively look for those opportunities where they make sense for the business. I was looking at uh, some statistics, and one that really caught my eye was this one. It says that by 2020, there's going to be a 50-fold increase in data that will be stored in the cloud. That's mind-boggling. You know, talk about clouds. These are storm clouds. How can you (laughs) handle all that data and do it, you know, in an environmentally conscious, uh, sustainable way? Can it be done? Yeah, and I think that's the question that Greenpeace is asking, is that you can't get to carbon neutrality with energy efficiency. What needs to happen is we need to go to less carbon-intensive electricity. What we're seeing is the states are going to a higher level of, uh, so through the renewable portfolio standards, meaning they have to, each state wants to have a higher mix of renewable energies in its electricity portfolio. In California, it's 30% by 2020. Texas and I believe Massachusetts have aggressive targets as well. What we're hoping is that as there's a bigger patchwork of these targets and standards among the states, at some point the federal government will say, we need to standardize on a, at least a baseline level uh, for the renewable energy. Do I hear you asking for federal regulation? <laughs> I think I would like to see the federal government take some leadership in this as far as an overall energy policy. What I hear a lot is that businesses are asking for some certainty around what is the price of carbon, what will be my future price of electricity, and then they can adapt their strategies. I think it's inevitable that we're we're marching towards carbon-free energy. I heard recently that it's a $7 trillion industry globally, and it would be nice for the U.S. to take a leadership role in that and get a decent-sized chunk of that. I think that might solve our economic woes and certainly our jobs problems. So kind of every cloud has a green lining. Every cloud has a green lining, yes. (laughs) Green both in dollars and environmental. (laughs) Well, Nicole, thank you so very much. Thank you, Bruce. Nicole Peel-Moulter is Director of Environmental Sustainability at Akamai. Now, we should note Apple, which scored low in the Greenpeace cloud study, disputes many of the findings about its reliance on coal and nuclear power. Apple plans to build America's largest privately owned solar facility to power its new cloud computing center in North Carolina. It will be built on-site on land around the massive building. But solar power has been hit hard by the economic downturn and supply of cheap natural gas. And recently, three of the biggest solar manufacturers have announced layoffs and cut back production. Still, things are bright and looking up for one sector of the solar industry— Corporate Rooftop Solar. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports. The largest rooftop solar system in North America takes up 25 acres on a warehouse in New Jersey, about 23 football fields. The size is just really hard to take in. Uh, Yeah, you would have to be in a helicopter. That's Keith Peltzman, president of Independence Solar. He was an advisor on the project, which provides electricity for a giant chilling warehouse on the Delaware River. A good deal of the produce that is shipped through the eastern portion of the United States comes in through this facility. There are only uh, probably a handful of buildings in the whole country 
that could do a solar installation this large. The panels on the roof are sending their nine megawatts into the building, but if they weren't, they'd power about fifteen hundred homes. For a while, for the handful of people who own buildings this large, the phones were ringing. They were being approached by all these Wall Street hedge funds and private equity investors that said, "Hey, let us lease your rooftop from you. We want to put a solar energy system that we pay for on there." And after the third or fourth meeting. The management of the Gloucester Marine Terminal said, "Hey, why is everyone so interested in our roof for this solar energy? And if it's such a great idea, maybe we should consider doing this on our own without these hedge funds." For the past couple of years, large building owners have been offered fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars a year to lease their roofs. Here's why: the last Bush administration began a generous credit. Thirty percent of everything a business spends on solar is subtracted from its taxes. But for this to be attractive, the company must. Owe taxes during the recession. Businesses weren't making any money and weren't installing solar to spur the industry. The Obama administration switched the tax credit into cash. The rooftop gold rush was on. And what happened is that there are all these new investors that came out of the woodwork. Solar developer Christina Scalinger is with the firm Girding Edlund. She used the government cash incentive for a rooftop project on the Jersey Garden Mall. The mall was the biggest solar project in the country for about eight weeks in February and March of this year. Why all these records set in New Jersey? The state also has strong paybacks for solar systems. You're not capped out on a certain system size. You can make it as large as you want. And for Jersey Gardens, we installed as much as we possibly could on the roof, so we maxed out the roof space. But now the government is no longer offering cash for solar. It's gone back to giving tax credits. So Christina Scalinger says we may not see as many huge commercial systems.、Uh, it's significantly harder. Investors too aren't spending as freely on solar projects right now. But the solar energy trend is likely to continue, even if it's not as hot. About half the states have clean energy policies that encourage it, and the price of panels is at an all-time low. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobed. The White House held an historic summit on environmental education, but the administration plans deep cuts in federal enviro ed programs, which takes some of the enthusiasm out of this year's Earth Day for Sean Miller. He's executive director of the Earth Day Network, and he attended the White House meeting. We were hoping to celebrate the 42nd anniversary of Earth Day here with、uh, many accomplishments. But we got an early Earth Day present, if you will, from the administration of proposed budget cuts, and a total of close to forty million dollars for environmental education programs that EPA, NOAA, as well as NSF, the National Science Foundation. Earth Day at forty-two. The years add up, but the money for environmental education doesn't. To hear our interview with Sean Miller, check out our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, revisiting the BP oil disaster two years later, a former U.S. senator and ex-head of the EPA issue a report card. Your parents wouldn't be proud. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman.
Oil from a sunken rig in the Gulf of Mexico has now reached the Louisiana coastline. Well, BP says that its containment cap system is making some real progress. The concern is if the oil flowing into the Gulf isn't stopped, it could push all the way over to Florida. The BP debacle dumped 200 million gallons of crude into the Gulf of Mexico. Today, two years on, we look back on the disaster and try to assess the environmental impact so far. In July 2010, we sent Living on Earth reporter Jeff Young to survey the mess. Oil was still gushing into the Gulf when Jeff set out on a boat about 10 miles from the mouth of the Mississippi with National Wildlife Federation biologist Doug Inkley. Jeff spotted an oil slick on the sea. Okay, but as nasty as this is, this has got to be better than it was. Well, certainly the situation I'm looking at on the surface appears to be better than it was from what I saw two months ago. It is more degraded. Uh, I'm not seeing as much of it, but I'm also not looking underwater. I'm very anxious to see the reports and the science that comes back from NOAA and other government agencies that is trying to look at this underwater. I wish you would come back and talk to me in five years, and I could say I was wrong. I hope I'm wrong about the impacts, but I don't think I am. Inkley thinks the impact will be big and broad, and he says it's time to start thinking the same way about recovery, large-scale and long-term. The ultimate solution to this BP oil spill is to do long-term restoration. You really can't clean the oil up, as we've seen, because it's still floating out here in the Gulf. You really can't clean it up once it's spilled. If you go into the wetlands, you do more harm than good by tromping around in there or using other means to try to get it out of there. Recognizing that we can't go in and clean the oil out of the wetlands, let's put into place a large program to begin to restore some of these wetland areas. That was Doug Inkley with the National Wildlife Federation in 2010. Well, we decided to check back with Doug earlier than he suggested to see how the Gulf and wildlife are doing now, two years after the disaster. Oil is still there. As a matter of fact, oil was oozing out of the marshes as we stepped in it. So there's no question that the oil is still there. The big concern I have right now is that we are seeing evidence from independent scientific studies and a little bit of information released from the federal government's natural resources damage assessment. But most of the information that we need to have about the impacts is being held undercover. It's not being released. It's considered confidential because of the litigation, which is in process. Well, we do know that certain species have been dramatically affected. I'm thinking of the dolphins in the Gulf. Uh, But since the disaster, there have been over 600 stranded dolphins along the coast. And usually there's about 75 a year. That's right. The dolphin strandings are way, way above uh, historic levels. As a matter of fact, uh, the number of months that we have had above average dolphin strandings is now 26. That's two and a half times longer than ever before with four times as many dolphins killed. The dolphins are an indicator species because they're at the top of the food chain. In the studies that were released from dolphins in the most heavily oiled areas in Barataria Bay, they're finding that these dolphins are sick. They have anemia. Uh, they have signs of, of liver disease. They have low blood sugar. Their immune systems appear to be compromised. This is not a good sign. What about uh, you know things like zooplankton, the stuff that's at the bottom of the food chain, is hazardous to ingest? 
Well, it may well be because what they did find was they found residual signs of the oil uh, in the zooplankton and phytoplankton, uh, zooplankton being small animals, phytoplankton being small plants, both of them plankton. And so they're finding this in them, and they are at the very base of the food chain. If you go further up the food chain into the killifish, which is a small fish that lives in the marshes along the coast, uh, they have found uh, very strong evidence of physiological changes in these killifish. And then Look at the dolphins that eat the fish. We have a problem with them as well. So there is evidence, what little available at the present time, that unfortunately our predictions of just a year or two ago when the oil spill occurred are coming true. I'm not really surprised because if you look at the Exxon Valdez spill 23 years ago, Pacific herring population still has not recovered. So the Gulf oil spill is not over. We're going to be living with it for quite some time. When our reporter, Jeff Young, spoke with you in July 2010, the gusher still hadn't been capped, and you were worried about the wetlands back then. What about the the long-term restoration of the wetlands, and what's the condition of the wetlands right now? Well, we are still seeing oil in the wetlands. We know that we have had additional loss of wetlands because they're toxic to these wetlands. Some areas simply cannot be cleaned up. What we really need to do here to recover from this Gulf Coast oil spill, from this disaster, is to do long-term restoration of the wetlands in the Gulf. Unfortunately, the oil spills, the latest of many assaults that man has inflicted on the Gulf of Mexico's wetlands, and we have lost a tremendous amount of them, including some 2,000 square miles of wetlands already. Imagine, that's an area 200 miles long by 10 miles wide of Gulf Coast wetlands that have already been lost, and this accelerated it. Well, is there any... um Is there any bright sign from this grim news? Is it any species or a plant that's doing well? A bright side on this, that's a tough one to to really uh, come up with a good answer for you, Bruce, because there are so many things that still need to be done as a result of this oil spill that have not yet been done. We haven't dedicated the fines to restoration of the Gulf. We haven't strengthened the regulations uh, to regulate uh, oil and gas development in the Gulf. In fact, it continues now with no improvement in them uh, since the accident occurred. And the wildlife have been affected, and we do not yet have a comprehensive Gulf Coast restoration program in place. So it's hard for me to be very pleased with the progress that has been made since the spill began just two years ago. We still have a lot of work to do. We need to get these things done. Doug Inkley is Senior Wildlife Biologist with the National Wildlife Federation. To prevent oil drilling disasters in the future, President Obama created the National Oil Spill Commission. Heading up the independent commission were William Riley, chief of the EPA under President George H. Bush, and Bob Graham, former U.S. senator and ex-governor of Florida. Their first assessment, a year after the spill, was a searing evaluation of BP, the oil industry, and the government's response. Now they've issued a new report card, and the co-chairmen are feeling a bit more charitable but only a bit. We start with former EPA Administrator William Riley. We gave uh, industry a C-plus and frankly would have given them a higher grade, but for the fact that there have been three spills, one in China, one in Brazil, one in the North Sea within the past year with major companies involved. And uh, other than that, uh, they've done a great deal to respond to the recommendations we made. So, uh, Senator, if there was a, a Macondo BP oil disaster that happened today... Would they be able to respond to industry? Grade is incomplete. The industry has uh, set up two entities which are responsible for 
containing and cleaning up a future event like uh, Macondo. It appears as if those are very solid and will be effective, but they've never been tested. Mr. Riley, you were uh, the administrator of the EPA. Um, How would you grade the EPA? Well, the EPA was responsible for a task force that convened with respect to the ecological circumstances of the Gulf and the fines and penalties, which are likely to be very considerable, levied against BP, are dedicated, as we recommended in the commission, 80% to ecological restoration until we actually see those resources and see them dedicated in the way we proposed then uh, it's a little hard to say how that will come out. But the EPA administrator, Lisa Jackson, uh, led that group and uh, shares with us the conviction that that's where the money ought to go rather than into the federal treasury, which ordinarily it would go. The uh, government uh, also, particularly the Interior Department, has just reformed itself. A lot of new hires, much better leadership, better uh, quality of engineers, more formation and training and so forth, and uh, a lot of new regulations that we think make sense and look like they do respond to the recommendations we made and the findings that we uh, concluded. So the administration gets uh, what grade? We gave the administration a B. Mm-hmm. Well, it's Congress that doles out the money and it makes the regulations. How have you rated Congress? This is Senator Bob Graham. Congress has done some good things. One is the passage in the Senate of the legislation that would allocate 80% of the fines to restoration of the Gulf. The House has not yet uh, taken that legislation up. Uh, And second, the Congress has appropriated uh, significantly more resources to the Department of Interior to carry out uh, its safety responsibilities. Uh, But beyond that, the Congress has done virtually nothing to implement the recommendations that we made. So in answer to your question, we gave Congress a D. A D. In terms of new oil drilling in the Gulf, do you feel comfortable that there won't be an accident on the scale of the BP disaster? No, I don't believe anybody can give you an insurance policy that there won't be a spill. What we can say is that the chances of such an event are lower, and there's been no drilling within state waters of Florida, nor in the federal waters which are adjacent. And this goes back uh, many years. Now, where there is drilling is off the coast of Cuba. For the first time, Cuba is drilling in its offshore waters. The drill sites are very close to the Gulf Stream, which means that if they're were to be an accident, the oil would go immediately into the Gulf Stream and be swept north along the eastern seaboard of the United States. Uh, That's a legitimate concern. Is there anything technological, managerial, legislative, social, cultural that would prevent the continuation of deep drilling in the Gulf of Mexico? Yes, and it's the loss of public confidence that it can be done uh, safely and without endangering Uh, the environment and uh, the coastal areas. So I think that there is a merger of interest of those who are anxious to increase or maintain uh, U.S. offshore oil and gas production and those who are interested in safety and ability to respond to an accident. Both elements are going to be necessary to maintain public confidence in this very important activity, which today uh, is providing in excess of 30 percent of the oil and gas raised throughout the United States. This is William Riley. 
I think that's important, but that it's got to be done with uh, greater rigor, greater care than it has been historically. There was a, I think, a transition that occurred from shallow water to deep water, which significantly raised the risk and complexity. In our view, the industry and government together did not adequately adapt to these higher risks with better systems of safety and a somewhat transformed culture. We believe that now there is evidence over the last couple of years at least that is changing. That is a change much to be desired. One hopes that it will be more effective as a result. Mr. Riley, thank you very much. You're very welcome. And Senator Graham, thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Former Florida Senator Bob Graham and former EPA Administrator William Riley co-chaired the National Oil Spill Commission. Plans are now underway to begin drilling for oil 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Deep under the frigid waters is one of the largest untapped oil reserves in the U.S. Several companies sought drilling rights, but only Shell Oil has federal permission to begin drilling exploratory wells in the Arctic. That's because Carolyn Cannon made a federal case out of it. She sued oil companies that had hoped to drill in the Arctic waters, and she and her co-plaintiffs won all the lawsuits except the one against Shell. For her efforts, Carolyn Cannon is one of this year's winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize. She lives in the remote village of Point Hope, Alaska, population 700. It's an Inupiat community trying to balance development and traditional ways. My traditional name is Akuak. A-Q-U-G-A-Q. Akuak. What does it mean literally, Akuak? You know, most of our names, there's no meaning. It's just a name that was given. I'm going to call you Caroline. Thank you. (laughs) Well, tell me about your home, Point Hope. Point Hope has always been a historical site, our old village, um, but we have the proof that we've been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. We have the ice cellars that our ancestors built years ago to store away the whale meat. We have the sod houses that were built before even plywood came by. They were built with whale bones. We land a whale, and it's a celebration for a whole calendar year. There's a preparation that starts in March. We get the equipment, the boats, the skin sewing. The whaling starts as we speak. They're probably out there. I know in Barrow, I heard on the Facebook that they're out there whaling. We have the endangered species, the polar bears, the seals, the walrus, the beluga, the fish. Bountiful. It's a blessing place to be, and I'm proud to be a Tikiarmirkam. That's the Eskimo name for Point Hope. Well, besides whale in this area, you've got a lot of oil and gas. At least that's what oil and gas companies say, and they want to drill there. Shell's planning to do it this summer, start at least exploring and, and drilling test wells. What's your concerns about the oil and gas drilling? For one thing, the infrastructure's not there. Look, we're a unique small village, and yet sometimes um, a medevac can't even come in. If it's a life and death situation, we're not ready for it. But could you imagine if there was an oil spill, you know, you're not going to be able to take care of it right then and there. It took three months to stop the flow in the Gulf of Mexico. When the ice decides to stack up with the power that it has, there's no stopping it. We cannot. No man can stop it. When Mother Nature does her thing and the winds are gusting 40 to 50 miles an hour, there's no way, no how. Well, Interior Secretary Ken Salazar has said that Shell will be operating under, and I'm quoting here, the strongest of oversight, safety requirements, and emergency response plans ever established. He says it's okay. It's going to be safe. 
On a piece of paper, it looks good, but are we ready for it? And I, I sure hope that they're not going to be able to test what-ifs in our ocean because that's too much at stake. Because the Arctic is so precious, you know, we don't want to be the first to test that out. When you speak to Shell, what do they say? Do they talk to you? Well, I've sat with them, and they're saying, look, this is what's going to happen, and we have the equipment, we'll have the manpower, and, you know, they're trying to convince. And they said, well, we did a sampling, or, you know, it's one thing that they try to demonstrate and say they're capable of doing it, but for the actual thing, if they're going to mess in our backyard or in our garden, as we refer it, they have to have the top of the notch. That They have not convinced me yet. Because there are people in the community who don't agree with you. They want the jobs that the oil and gas drilling will bring. I thought about it. You know, there's two sides to the coin. You know, there's the pros and the cons, and the, and that's that's reality. I think I speak on behalf of my family, my tribe, as I refer them, my many grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to come. You know, I'm just imagining, here comes an oil company. They'd move in in a big way. It'll transform Point Hope. You know, we're not ready. When you think about the social impact, we're not prepared. It's a scary thought. Um, You know, it's going to be a culture shock, a social impact. I don't think my people have a clue what this can mean and how it's going to affect our community in the long run. I'll tell you one thing. I know that, you know, we can move mountains and remove mountains. And I just want to say um, one voice can make a big difference. And I just say I will do what I have to do. And if it's just educating the world, and if that's what our Creator called me to be, I will be the voice. I'll continue to. And if I have the prayer and the blessings of my people, I will do what I can. Tell me your native name again, please. Akawak. Akawak. Did I do that right? Akawak. Exactly. Well, Akawak, thank you so very much. You said it so sweet. Thank you. Carolyn Cannon is one of this year's recipients of the Goldman Environmental Prize. Coming up, butterflies in Uganda, not just elusive, but endangered. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Geller. A small crowd gathers on Seattle's Alki Beach. Nearby, a seal pup lays in the sand. No, we can't. Like other mammals, seal pups depend on their moms for food, but while she takes to the sea in search of fish, the pup is left to survive the perils of the shore alone. That's where Brenda Peterson comes in. She finds and saves seal pups by Seattle's Salish Seashore. Brenda Peterson is the founder of Seal Sitters, and the author of the new children's book, Leopard and Silky. It's about rescuing seal pups. Brenda Peterson, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you, Bruce. Good to be here. So these marine mammals are protected by the Marine Mammals Act. The federal government protects them, but you say that they're being threatened. 
I think they are needing more protection, and it's because our beaches are really urban at this point. And though these are urban seals, the pups are not prepared for such activity. The moms leave the pups after just a few hours sometimes. But when you're on Alki Beach here in West Seattle, there is so much activity that the mother who leaves the pup at, say, 4 a.m. when it's very peaceful will try to come back to pick up the pup after fishing to nurse the pup, and there's 500 people on the beach. And if it's so full of people, their survival goes down. It would basically leave the pups alone. Yes, The shoreline is a very important place. They spend 50% of their time on shore. So we've been trained for the past several years by NOAA for marine mammal strandings to look to see if there's human-caused injury, to see if there's a pup on the beach who is starving or not surviving the weaning period. And when we go out on our daily walks, instead of tuning out, we've trained people to keep their eyes out for pups. So this organization that you founded, Seal Sitters, basically trains people to help keep pups separated from people. Exactly. The number one predator on the beach is dogs off-leash. There are diseases that go back and forth between all the pups. So we try to protect our own domesticated pups as well as the seal pups. So we saw a need to actually do a kind of daycare on the beach for newborn pups. In your book, uh, Leopard and Silky, about two seal pups, you use a word which I had never come across. It's allomothering. Do I have that correct? I was hoping you would ask about that. (laughs) Well, what's allomothering? I came upon this idea that scientists call allomothering, which means nurturing a species that is not your own. So the people, the volunteers that you train in seal sitting are allomothers. They are aloe mothers and aloe fathers. (laughs) We have guys on the beach. We have teenagers. We have grandmothers. We have retired people. I call it neighborhood naturalists. I understand that you have one of your young volunteers there. Um, Etienne, are you there? Yes. Hi. So you're uh, how old, Etienne? I just turned 11. How long have you been doing seal sitting? Well, I really started when I was in second grade. The first time I saw a seal pup, it was Forte. We named him Forte because he was strong and he had been injured. Um, My family came down to see this pup, and when we did, we saw Robin Lindsay, a photographer, and she told us all about the seal and seal sitters. A bit later in second grade, we were doing a project of people who stick their necks out and volunteer to help make our world better. I decided to do Robin. Ever since then, I was part of the Seal Sitters. So you've given a name to one pup. Any others? I haven't named one, but there have been some named Pa and Queen Latifah. There's one named E.T. Have you ever saved a seal pup? I haven't personally, but I've helped to save one by telling people about them and not to hurt them or go near them, don't disturb them. So if I was walking down the beach and I had my dog off leash, what would you say to me? I would ask you to please put your dog on a leash so the dog can't get injured by the seal. Also, his scent could rub off onto the seal, as a human's could. And then the mother would not have her scent on her pup, so she wouldn't come back to get him. Oh, really? Has that happened? Have you ever seen that happen? 
I've never seen it, but it has happened before. People have poked them with sticks and even gone as far to take them into their bathtubs. Sometimes they die. You know, Etienne, I was looking at this book by uh, Brenda, and I'm looking at the pictures, and seals are really cute. But Yes, they are. Would you spend so much of your time and emotional energy saving an animal if it were ugly? Well, I would because they're still an animal and they still have a life and they're still part of our planet. At your age, uh, many kids are thinking about doing babysitting, not seal sitting. You think you're going to get busier with your life and you're going to stop doing this? Well, I am busy right now, but I still try my hardest to be able to do this too. I want to try to be a seal sitter for as long as I can. What do you think of uh, Brenda's book, uh, Leopard and Silky? I love the book. It's a great book. It shows how you can help a seal. Well, Brenda, that's high praise from uh, Etienne. Out of the mouth of babes. <laughs> I'm so moved whenever I hear the children because they are the future. But Brenda, what's the future of federal funding to save marine mammals? I know that the funding is scheduled to be zeroed out. We're really alarmed about that, Bruce, because stranding networks such as ours, they are the first responders to anything on the beach that washes up or is stranded. So the stranding networks are the kind of vital resource that show us the health of our marine systems. And why should we cut funding to the only thing where humans and animals interact successfully and compassionately? Well, Brenda Peterson, thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce. And Etienne, thank you. Thank you for having me. Etienne is a volunteer seal sitter. The organization based in Seattle was founded by Brenda Peterson, who's also author of the new children's book about saving seal pups, Leopard and Silky. Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore once wrote, The butterfly counts not months but moments and has enough time. But in Uganda, butterflies may be running out of time. The East African country has over 1,200 species. And as Ari Daniel Shapiro reports, the fate of the butterfly and ours are inextricably linked. The moths... In her laboratory in Kampala, Uganda, Perpetra Akite pulls open one drawer after another in a tiny cabinet. Female is this yellow? Each drawer contains a burst of butterflies or moths, pinned and preserved. Akite is a PhD student, and we're at Makarere University. She's a lepidopterist. Very nice group. And she's curious about what live butterflies and moths can tell her about the changing environment of Uganda. Oh, do you see a... Here's one, a white one. Akite takes me outside. A couple of white Pieridae butterflies dip through the air. So many beautiful butterflies. Akite's love of butterflies emerged early. She was seven and growing up in a rural area in northern Uganda. My parents were, you know, farmers. We used to go out in the bushes. And I was good at collecting caterpillars. I kept them some something like pets, you know. Even as a child, she wasn't just appreciating. She was studying. Akite would carry the caterpillars home along with branches from the tree where she found them. The leaves were a guaranteed food supply. And then she'd watch as they made their cocoons, eventually emerging as butterflies. And my dad, much as he wasn't a biologist, he encouraged me into having this around. It's a passion that stayed with her. 
She looks for them on campus on days like today, but she also travels to more remote areas in Uganda to find them. Yes, I do have one little butterfly, which most times I think is my favorite. <laughs> it's a forest butterfly, not so common. Called Abyssera nyavi, it's white and black with a tail. It's this one gentle butterfly, and it has this agile flight. I have a picture of it in my Bible. <laughs> Stays with me all the time. But Akite's butterfly, Abisera Niavi, she's not finding as many of them anymore. In fact, she's not finding as many butterflies. Period. The things I saw as a child are no more. A lot of them are not there. I put up my traps, and I used to get probably forty, fifty butterflies in a trap in a night. And now you put it almost same time. And you're getting ten. You're getting five. You, you know, it's almost not there. Butterfly numbers are down throughout Uganda, but there's more to it than that. The insects have become a lens through which Akite can see the problems of her whole country. They're indicator species, indicators of a changing landscape and a changing climate. First of all, there's the issue of deforestation. When you're looking at forest, you're trying to see what proportion of the forest-dependent species are there. Because if it is a good forest, you don't expect open country species there. But the fact that they're there means we can tell you how much of the forest is getting open. Throughout Uganda, butterflies that live in the forests are really suffering. They're losing out to those that thrive in the open countryside. Akite has found fewer numbers of butterflies nearly everywhere she looks, and newly cut forests encourage different types of butterflies to replace those that were there before. In the last 20, 25 years, entire swaths of wild space in Uganda have disappeared: savannas, woodlands, swamps. There's too much housing building which has come up. Not to mention the growth of agriculture and farming. Climate change has also complicated matters, but not in terms of warmer temperatures. It's always warm and hot and stuff in a tropical area, but rainfall is actually how best to measure climatic change. When you talk to the people. They will tell you how much the rainfall patterns have changed, so it's almost unpredictable. Butterfly life cycles in the tropics are tied to a particular timing and sequence of wet and dry periods. Unseasonal droughts or heavy rainfalls can hit butterflies hard. It's a sad thing in a way, but there's conflict between human need and conservation, and that conflict is one that is going to take a long time to resolve. A very long time to resolve. Akite continues to fight for the butterflies. For instance, she informs developers how they can plan, build, and landscape to protect butterflies and their habitats. She's taking care of her butterflies, just like she did when she was seven. Only now, the stakes are a lot higher. Our story about Ugandan butterflies was reported by Ari Daniel Shapiro for the series One Species at a Time. It's produced by Atlantic Public Media with support from the Encyclopedia of Life. In April, we nurture nature with poetry. Today, to commemorate National Poetry Month, we hear from Afa Michael Weaver. Afa was given to me by a friend from Nigeria. It means an oracle, and in the Igbo culture, an oracle is someone who's well translates most correctly as a therapist, someone who can、uh, clarify the present for you but not the future.、Uh, 
In the Igbo, people believe that the future belongs only to divine knowledge, not human. Poetry is often a distillation of a writer's observations, emotions, and experiences. It was a trip to the Far East that inspired Afa Michael Weaver to pen his poem, Leaves. I was in Taiwan, on the eastern coast of Taiwan, in a uh, Zen monastery. And um, the gates to the uh, monastery are about 150 yards from the ocean, from the Pacific. And I was there in the spring of 2005, living there for about five weeks, and um, teaching Tai Chi to the monks, or to the nuns, I should say. And it's a very beautiful place, and uh, on the side of a mountain, foliage everywhere, and um, a giant statue of Guanina, goddess of compassion on the top of the hill. And so I take walks in the garden every day, and walking through the flowers and the hedge bushes and under the trees and next to the bamboo, and that's where this poem came from. The music that comes to me for this uh, poem is the music of uh, traditional Chinese opera. Leaves. The lines that make you are infinite, but I count them every day to hear the stories you carry. These are not secrets but records, things we should know but ignore. If I commit the sin of tearing you from the tree, I find another world inside the torn vein, another lifetime of counting the records of who walked here before, of what lovers lay here, holding each other through wars and starvation. Some days I stand here until I lose focus and travel, drifting off out of the moment, too full of it, and my legs are now like trees, mindless but vigilant, held into the earth by the rules of debt, what we owe to nature for trying to tear ourselves away. I drift and the pleasure of touch comes again, layers of green in the mountainside a-tickling in my palms. The pleasure is that of being lost here in the crowd of trunks and pulp, the ground thick with the death of you, sinking under my feet as I go, touching one and another, linking myself through until the place where I entered is gone. When I am afraid, my breath is caught in my throat. When I am not afraid, I lift both hands up under a bunch of you to find the way the world felt on the first day. Poet, playwright, and Professor Afa Michael Weaver holds the Alumni Endowed Chair in English at Simmons College. His poem, Leaves, will be published next year in his book, The Government of Nature. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Jessica Elise Kern, Helen Palmer, and Ike Shreeskandaraja, with help from Megan Miner, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Mary Bates and Sophie Golden. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And don't forget our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter, 
at Living on Earth. That's just one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.